0: We're more focused on seeming progressive than we are in actually being progressive because we put so much effort into how we are perceived.
1: You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life. But what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy, and the perils of instant gratification, and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests, like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Ashley Dottie Charles is a broadcaster and writer. After joining the BBC in 2014, she became the first solo female to host the BBC Radio 1 Extra Breakfast Show, on which she has interviewed everyone from Oprah Winfrey to Will Smith. Dottie has also presented BBC One's Sounds Like Friday Night and is the host of the Netflix series What to Watch on Netflix. And now she's written a book, Outraged, Why Everyone is Shouting and No One is Talking, a lively, humorous plea to channel our outrage in more productive ways. The book expanded from a piece Dottie wrote for The Guardian in 2018, titled, As a black gay woman, I have to be selective in my outrage, so should you. As a side note, we recorded this episode before Katie Hopkins, who Dottie interviews in the book and we talk about in the interview, was permanently suspended from Twitter. The piece went viral and led Dottie to think more about the discourse that we see not just exploding online, but in our real lives too.
0: Everyone is offended by everything, it's exhausting keep him up with all the non-inclusive, misogynistic, racist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, ageist, cultural appropriating, body shaming propaganda that seems to litter the social media age. Apparently, in 2018, almost anything is subject to the scrutiny of one marginalised eye or another. Being outraged allows you to take the moral high ground. It reaffirms your righteousness. It lets you say, I am offended and therefore I am principled. It lets you jump on the bandwagon and pledge allegiance to the latest campaign on your timeline. It gives you a vehicle to add your name to the narrative. It proves that you are following current affairs, albeit from the comfortable vantage point of your Instagram feed. It allows you to place yourself on the virtuous side of the conversation. It says, I am woke.
1: That was an excerpt of the piece you wrote in 2018. It really comes alive, you reading it. This piece then turned into the book Outrage, which has just come out. Did you realise, as soon as you wrote the piece, that you had so much more to say? I did
0: actually. When I was, even as I was writing it, um, I thought this this is such a huge area. There are so many case studies. So in the original article, I touched on a few uh, recent examples of what I believe to be misplaced outrage. But there are so many examples that the, the piece was swelling and swelling and swelling and I had to actually um, sort of go back and edit it and make it a, a, a faster read. Um, but as soon as I submitted that piece, I realised that I was only scratching the surface of outrage.
1: A lot of this outrage is, you write, a diversion and a distraction. So, And it's, it's very funny, some of the things you go into, because it makes you realise how completely nuts... The world has gone worrying about Jamie Oliver's jerk sauce whether the greeting hey guys is offensive to women or whether Peppa Pig fosters an unrealistic image of the NHS distracts from the fact that 1.4 million girls are forced into child marriage each year or that 54,000 women in the UK are permanently forced out their jobs once they became pregnant and when you write it like that it does seem madness and I wonder do you think this is because it's so much easier to worry about trivialities and specifics than it is about something historic and sprawling and nebulous that isn't like instantly solvable.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think there are a few reasons why we focus our outrage so much on the trivial. Um, I think for one, outrage has become a bit of a sport. It is a diversion. It's become a bit of a pastime. I think Mm. people unwittingly engage in outrage because It can at times be an adrenaline rush. Anybody who has ever, for example, given a celebrity a severe dressing down um, and then had the result of 1,000 retweets, it can be a bit of a rush when you engage in the sport of outrage. And it's much easier to engage in that if it doesn't bear the weight of a a much bigger issue. It's something you can kind of attack and sum up in one clever tweet, uh, which is much harder to do if you're talking about, say, systemic racism, which is a much bigger thing. Um, But I think also it's easier to direct our outrage at people than it is institutions. Um, So sometimes we we simply attack that which is within reach as opposed to taking on the absolute mammoth weight of, of some of these much bigger issues. It's it's much easier to post something slightly outraged about, uh, as you say, Jamie Oliver's jerk rice, than it is to start trying to dissemble the issue of, of slave trade in Syria, for example.
1: Can you talk a little bit about why distractions and diversions are dangerous?
0: Of course. I think, I mean, for so many reasons, uh, but I think on a base level, we are devaluing our outrage by focusing it on small, trivial matters. If, for example, you've um, been sort of exerting your energy on the Kardashians and what they represent, and then in another week you were uh, ranting about uh, inflation price, um, I don't know, sugar, um, as soon as you attempt to tackle something which really warrants your outrage you've kind of devalued your outrage because well you were just you were just as angry about the kardashians you were just as angry about the sugar tax now when you're tackling something which is for example uh, gender bias in in employment structures i cannot take it as seriously as i would have if you were somebody who focused your outrage on these things because it, you've trivialised your own expression. At the same time, I think also we we let big things pass us by while we are having these these conversations uh, about things which are merely diversions. And I look at a few of these examples in in the book, and there are several instances, Pandora, um, but one in the book that I look at uh, was the notoriety of a woman called Rachel Dozel,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who in 2015 became the object of ridicule and mass outrage the world over because she was outed as a race faker she had been pretending to be black she occupied headlines for months on end in the UK and and in the United States of America and beyond and this was it was spoofed on Saturday night live she was on doctor phil it really the swell around this issue was huge.
1: There was a whole um, Netflix series on
0: her, wasn't there? There was a the racial effect or something. The it was, Divide. It was called the the Rachel Divide. Yeah. A little uh, a little pun on racial yeah. divide <laughs> um, with her name. Um, but yes, so there was this huge thing around how one woman in Spokane, Washington, a place where many of us will never go, um, we were focused on how this woman had uh, deceived everyone around her, uh, but at the same time we allowed someone called Dylan Roof, who far fewer people will remember the name Dylan Roof, but at the exact same time in the United States of America, Dylan Roof in Charleston went into a church and opened fire in a, a, a hate crime and he murdered brutally in cold blood a congregation of black people, fueled entirely by racism. And he just slipped entirely off our outrage agendas as I say people don't really remember his name um while Rachel dozel was being cemented into I mean pop culture her name is in in songs and she's referenced in comedy series and in stand-up routines Rachel dozel's name has lived on uh, but Dylan roof we completely let that one slide and they happened in unison and I find I find that to be a, a real issue in that sometimes we're we're looking over here at the at the circus when there's there's a real real issue happening while our while our eyes are reverted.
1: Do you feel like the outrage over Rachel erased nuance? It was this very weird, complicated story that about the fallacy of transracialism that got flattened into her just being this comic book villain.
0: Because outrage has kind of become our go-to our go-to mode of expression on social media there is loads of statistics to prove that it's outrage that travels the furthest and the fastest so it's kind of our go-to when it comes to engagement or when it comes to interaction and it's currency you right like exactly currency online it's, it's currency and because of that we do we lean so much on outrage expression and because of that we tend not to want to sit on the fence. We look at the fence as sort of this horrible, scary place. And we we associate sitting on the fence with being indifferent, with being disconnected um, and all those other negative words. When in reality, sometimes we kind of need to allow ourselves that moment to sit on the fence, to figure it out, to weigh it up. I think people think, um, oh, I'm not sure, it's a cop out. So we quickly resort to one of the extremes. And I think Rachel Dozel is a case that really deserved a little bit more care in our reaction because most people that engaged with the, the Rachel Dozel affair were doing so from a place of outrage or from a place of ridicule. And because of that, she sort of became this overnight villain when in truth, her, her crime was in no way proportionate to, to, the, uh, to the consequence.
1: There is this pressure to pick a side, isn't there, which becomes especially dangerous if we don't know all the facts or if we aren't actually sure of our opinion yet.
0: Pick a side now, um, based on, on very little information, it tends to lead us into these sort of impulsive decisions. And, you know, you might read something later on that discredits your original view, but now you're tethered to this <laughs> um, original arbitrary choice that you made in a, in, a, in a bit of a panic. And you don't want to veer from that because you don't want to appear, you know, like you flip flop. So we find ourselves
1: doubling down, time
0: <laughs> doubling down and being extremely sort of pig headed about this view that we made in a bit of a panic. And there's so much of that because quite often on, on social media, when when there's, when, there's um, when anything really, people want to be fastest as opposed to most factual. So people are kind of responding in record time, and you know, scrambling for something that even slightly resembles a point of view, and at times they're kind of caught with their pants down because some new information emerges 24 hours later, and as I said, you're now tethered to this um, this stance that you took a day earlier, and I think we we need to kind of normalize saying, "I'm not quite sure," or "I I have no view," instead of always sort of forcing ourselves to pick a side to have a point of view sometimes as controversial as it sounds
1: it's okay not to have an opinion I couldn't agree more I find it really odd this idea that anyone could have opinions on absolutely everything as you say it's it would be completely exhausting and something that you wrote that I Found. I mean, I found it all incredibly interesting, but something that I found particularly interesting is when you wrote that outrage is merely the opportunity to prove our integrity in public. And I wonder, do you think that in the same way you you mentioned there about how we're so keen to be the fastest, which I think comes from this idea that we have to like mimic the internet, we sort of treat ourselves like Google search engines now. So there's this idea that we need to move so quickly on everything which also of course means that like the veracity of our sources is is pretty dubious but despite knowing to the contrary i feel like there's this kind of collective illusion that we can know everything about someone's offline behavior or character yeah. by their behavior online and i feel like that's become particularly applicable recently with the conversations around what makes an activist or what makes an ally? And this idea that you have to distill all your offline behaviour online and all your online behaviour offline.
0: Absolutely. And look, the social media as a business model is kind of hinged on this idea that if, if you didn't post it, it didn't happen. Right. Mm. That's how that's how Instagram and Twitter and Facebook survive. You didn't go on holiday unless we've seen it. which is mad it's mad right to this
1: point so in like what 10 years
0: yeah and you know you weren't at that concert unless you you posted a picture of it and you weren't actually um showing your allegiance to this cause unless you posted that petition that you signed and you took a screenshot of the money that you donated and we're kind of caught in this just perpetual performance Mm. where we are we're more focused on seeming Progressive than we are in actually being progressive because we put so much effort into how we are perceived that our outrage has almost become ornamental because it's more about the show of outrage than the actual act of activism. And that's why so often our outrage is ineffectual because there's no real impetus behind it other than, you know, pure display.
1: I think as well, like you were saying earlier, is we have to be able to kind of disentangle what platforms are great for what. So, you know, social media has proved itself, particularly recently, to be like a brilliant vehicle for education, for gathering resources and for sharing those resources. But some people don't feel comfortable using social media and they're not going to be doing any of their education online. But then equally, there might be people who... Um, find it very difficult to leave their home for health reasons or physical reasons. And so all they can do is online. And I do wonder if there needs to be a bit more understanding about how, you know, someone isn't failing or letting everyone down if there's a medium that they feel more effective in.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think, for example, I've, in in the past few days, I've been using Twitter a lot less and it's actually at a time when Twitter has, has got much louder in the, the wake of this, this huge swelling of activity around Black Lives Matter. I've almost felt an obligation to be louder on social media, but I've, I've stepped away from sort of the noise of that space and I've been having conversations on air on my radio show. Now, if you don't listen to my radio show, you may think that I've just gone completely silent and you may think that oh it's apathy she's disengaged or she's unmoved when the truth is I'm simply using a a different outlet and we need to we need to remind ourselves that we have no obligation you know I think people get sucked into this oh I'm obliged to post this oh I, I should post this or it will look so bad if I don't share this when the obligation needs to be to the cause as opposed to the audience of that cause. And I think quite often we are so focused, as I say, on perception that we find ourselves doing for the audience of the cause more than we are doing for the cause itself.
1: And as your book sort of hinges on this idea that as a black gay woman and therefore quote-unquote, sort of a double minority, the idea that you have to be the person always talking about these issues?
0: Of course, I mean, look, when it comes to outrage, I think choice is a bit of a luxury. You know, some people can choose to just switch off entirely because there's very little that um, impacts them in terms of their day-to-day life. So me, as a a gay black woman, I don't even need to play outrage top trumps because I would win every time. I think the, the only person that would beat me perhaps would be a black gay woman that was in a wheelchair and you've got me on the able-bodied part. I think other than that though, I kind of represent this corner of society where I'm in a quite a unique position because I've encountered it all, be it systemic racism, be it misogynoir, be it homophobia. And I think when society sort of is doing its best to pull you under, people look to you as this mouthpiece. They expect you to be a mouthpiece for all of these issues. They're like, well, whenever an issue arises, surely you have a view because it's probably an affront to one of these elements of your identity. And I think f- for me, I need to remind myself that I, I do still have a choice and that it's necessary for my own sanity to at times filter out what. Does warrant and what doesn't warrant my my outrage otherwise as I say I'd just be perpetually
1: enraged I've seen a few writers actually in the last week saying don't just call on me to come on your show or to write something about my identity like you use me as a writer and a broadcaster rather when there's just like oh there's something on race in the news so I have to come and sort of perform my visibility you know tick that tick that box for you, rather than actually being a whole person who might want to talk about other stuff that day. And look, there's so much
0: of that. I've experienced that myself in recent weeks. You know, we'd love you to come up with an idea for a documentary series. Uh, and it's like, well, I was I was still a broadcaster last year when you weren't calling me. Um, and there is there is a lot of this. Um, and, you know, you, look, you see, it, you see it throughout history where some of our, in terms, when I say our, when I say the, the, the black community some of our greatest minds and our greatest creatives, be it, I don't know, James Baldwin, who is an incredible writer, Maya Angelou, have been pulled into being mouthpieces for, for the race struggle because we weren't afforded the privilege of actually just being the outlet for our passion. Mm. We had to first uh, earn the right to, to do that. And, and so many uh, black creatives are... More remembered for their roles in, in the civil rights movement because you kind of had to park it and get on with this first. You know, you, you had to be at the forefront of the civil rights movement first because that battle had to be won before you could be anything else.
1: That reminds me of something that uh, Candice. Brathwaite said this week where she was like, I'm so tired. Can someone just ask me about my collection of handbags or like, you know, I love shoes. Oh, get me to write about shoes.
0: I'm I di- am dying to just talk about old episodes of friends or something because you do, you kind of get, you get boxed in to this conversation and it's a conversation that needs to be had. Don't get me wrong. This dialogue is essential and I feel very hopeful for the for the place that we are in, it it does feel as though it is a new dawn. I've never actually in in my lifetime experienced what feels like a real a real impetus in this moment. It really feels as though we're witnessing a motivated generation that have found you know new innovative ways to mobilise. But in, in the same breath, it is absolutely exhausting. Just on a, when 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 you park the the greater good. On an individual human level, it is tremendously exhausting to exert yourself um, in, into this into this work because it is work it's it's a job that needs to be done.
1: We're seeing a lot of calling out and bids for cancellation in the last few weeks, corporations not practicing what they're preaching on social media in the way they run their businesses. What do you think about cancel culture? Do you think it helps or hinders progress? I think it's very important to hold
0: ourselves and each other accountable on and offline. I think it's so important. Uh, quite often we, we repeat problematic behavior. We don't amend our views because we haven't held ourselves accountable because others aren't, aren't holding us accountable. So I do think it's very important to at times call things out to address them. Do you know where I see a huge problem? and it's it's really bothered me recently is this practice of cancelling people for tweets that they sent out 8 years ago or for a view that they held i don't know 10 years ago when they first joined up to twitter that is completely at odds with with who they are now i think i mean i say this as as somebody who used to be a bit of a menace on twitter i was a bit rogue in 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 my views um, fortunately, I haven't said anything that has got me cancelled. But I realised that social media used to be this sort of, it seemed anyway, like this anonymous place. It seemed like the wild, wild west. You didn't think when you joined in 2009 that in 2020, somebody was going to find that tweet and was going to use it to get you fired from your job. And I think at times, you know, redemption is so much more powerful than revenge. I think if we, if we don't believe that people's views can change, if we don't believe that people can evolve, if we don't believe that people can be educated into becoming better human beings, then what is the point of anything? <laughs> why why would we protest or why would we try to uh, educate if we thought that everybody was set in their ways? You can't have both. You can't say that you are defined by something you said nine years ago and also say that you are campaigning for change because you're campaigning for change because you believe human beings have that capacity to change. And I think that's where the where the error is. We say we want sort of a, a new world. We want a, a progressive world, a more tolerant world. Um, but at the same time, we don't give people the space to grow. We don't give people the space to say, you know what, that was really wrong and I've taken on board everything that has been said and I'm going to move forward as a better person. It really irks me that sort of that dichotomy between thinking people can't change but then claiming that you want the world to change.
1: And those views are entirely antithetical because if you're educating yourself from one view to another there's going to be yeah. something that contradicts you in your past so it really does feel like a zero sum game and it does it does really worry me uh because we're not seamless morally unimpeachable human beings like by our very nature humans aren't like that if there's
0: somebody listening listening to this who is Never made a mistake in their life, then that is an incredible achievement. Um, I want to
1: meet you Teach let me know me your how ways. you did it.
0: Yes. <laughs> let me know how you did it, please. I will join your, I will join your cult and I want to be more like you. I'll pay the membership fees. Abs, I will subscribe, and I will never unsubscribe because you are you are an anomaly. Yeah. You know we are flawed. Even some of the greatest figures in history have character flaws, all right? Luckily for them, they didn't have Twitter. You know, Um, we do and therefore we unwittingly document our character flaws or we do an interview and we say something which then comes back to bite us in the butt three years later. Or, you know, we we say something which is funny by the standards of 2004, but then you shine the light on it in 2020 and suddenly it, it feels completely offensive. We have all unfortunately contributed to that and some people will simply slip under the radar and never have their their past mistakes brought up again but for many of us it's it's uh, it's a reality that these things may may haunt us still and it happens it happens to the best of us and i write in the book part of why i was motivated to write outraged was out of sheer fear it was this this kind of haunting feeling that Unless we stem the tide, unless we have a sobering moment, we will just one by one be picked off because of something we've done, something we've said or something we didn't say, you know. And I think it's a it's a very scary reality that we are kind of we are creating this dystopian future, which is free from expression because people are just scared of saying
1: anything. I think what feels so powerful about you saying it, though, and you writing this book, is I had read so many non-fiction books about how outraged we are by everything and how everyone's offended by everything and how snowflake everyone is, and they are always written by white, if not right-wing, then right-leaning middle-aged men. There are
0: people that will say, you know, do we need to be angry about that? Is everybody overreacting? Have things gone ridiculously PC? And I think a lot of those people will be looked at cynically because... There's also a motivation there to preserve systems that benefit you. You don't want people to call out systemic racism. You don't want people to to talk about gender bias, because if we start to dismantle those systems, then uh, the industry or the infrastructure that has been built for you as a middle class white man, maybe right leaning, those infrastructures, if they start to fall apart you've lost your position. So you kind of want to maintain the status quo and outrage tackles that. And I'm not saying it from a place of, let's not be outraged. My book's about how can we be better in our outrage? Mm. How can we be more effective in our outrage? I want people to be outraged. I want people to fight for what they believe in and to, you know, strive uh, for, for change. And once they've ticked that off their... Off their list you know set sail for the next horizon and let's continue to push humanity forward my book isn't about doing less of that it's about
1: figuring out how we do that better you coined something called the choir effect which is a really persuasive theory about how few people want to stand up and say something when no one else has said it and everything's quiet but we're right. all very happy to chime in where there's a precedent how is this exacerbated tribal behavior or mob mentality
0: I think a lot of our behaviors online not even just in in matters of outrage a lot of just our expression online is because we have allegiances to little pockets of society because we do we follow like-minded people or maybe we follow people in our field so I follow lots of broadcasters I follow lots of black women i follow lots of writers and podcasters because these are the these are the various worlds in which i operate now when you when you sit in those groups you are you are a voice in a choir so even if you don't have necessarily the words even if you don't necessarily have the range to say something in isolation you can simply position yourself with the rest of the choir be it with a repost, be it with a retweet, be it with something that we often do without realising, which is regurgitating something that somebody else has said in our own words. And we create this cacophony of sound that maybe wouldn't we wouldn't have been brave enough to create that racket on our own. But because we sit within this pocket and we can look to our left and we can look to our right and we can see people that also subscribe to our tribe, it gives us a strength in numbers which look can be used in a very progressive way, as, as we've seen, for example, with, with the Black Lives Matter movement, as we've seen in, in several instances. But also it can be really destructive when there is a collective of people making a lot of noise about the wrong thing.
1: of the book you interview people who are very polarizing one of whom is katie hopkins and i think a lot of people will be fascinated by that namely because you don't get angry which is even more fascinating (laughs) than you interviewing katie hopkins and you write about her the people who well you write about the sort of myth or the success of Casey Hopkins and let's be sure there is a myth and a success there because she now has 1 million followers on twitter so yeah. you you can't dismiss someone as irrelevant with that kind of with that kind of platform. And you write that the people who are most outraged by her are the same people who propelled her to stardom, which I think is totally true and quite confronting. But I wondered, did you have to debate that when deciding whether or not to interview her for your book, which is thus giving her a platform? I think
0: including her in my book was a choice that I made because I thought she was a great case study to show us the the anatomy of a villain, especially an intentional villain. I think that's Mm. the important thing with with Katie Hopkins. There are many people who have sort of woken up and it's like, oh shit, the internet hates me. What have I done? What have they dug up? And then you have this complete opposite type of villain, which is Katie Hopkins, where villainy is her business model. And I think, well, well, what I hope is that this book encourages people to disengage with Katie Hopkins. So I think including her in the pages was a sort of a necessary evil to to what I hope uh, is a moment that is sobering and and lifts the lid on her because I think what we often do with our outrage is we look we inadvertently boost the reach of something we wish had less exposure. You know, we we retweet something and say, God, have you read this awful article? Or have you seen this mm. awful hot take? And in doing so, increase the reach of it. Or we we repost something absurd that Piers Morgan has said, or that Dan Wootton has said, or that Katie Hopkins has said. And we've just completely heightened its exposure. And in doing that, we allow people like Katie Hopkins, who I'm convinced has created this brand of hate, for her own benefit, we fuel that and we help to build that empire. And um, So I went into this conversation of Katie Hopkins. I kind of had that hypothesis before I spoke to her. I've always thought there's, there's no way that there is not some engineering behind uh, this baddie that she has created. There's, there's no way that this is 100% authentic expression. I've I've always felt that there's um, a great deal of evil genius behind, behind Katie Hopkins. So I spoke to her, um, almost disarming her. Katie Hopkins' currency is the ability to provoke and the ability to wind up. As soon as you take that away from her, as soon as you have a conversation with her where you're unflappable, she's void of purpose because that is how she has built her brand. And I think having a conversation with her in that way was extremely revealing. And people that have, have read the book have said to me, wow, the Katie Hopkins chapter, that's, that seems to be the it's part of the one. book. Yes, it seems to be the part of the book that ha- has made a lot of people think about their own behaviours. We have so much more power than we give ourselves credit for. I think we allow ourselves, especially on social media, so much of this book um, is kind of hinged around social media as a forum because it's the space in which all of this plays out. And on social media, we kind of allow ourselves to go with the tide. You know, we feel like there are key people you must be following. We allow social media to steer us towards uh, these must-follow people. It's it's what has created the influencer brand, It's Mm. there are some go-to people, uh, but with that, there are some go-to attitudes. We allow ourselves also to be pulled with the tide of opinion. It's like, okay, this seems to be the general consensus. This seems to be the way that my echo chamber is leaning. So you allow your own sentiments to be pulled in the directions of the majority you follow who the majority of people follow you side with what the majority of people are saying and we don't give ourselves enough credit we can curate our entire experience um, I used to follow some sort of gossip pages and I found them really toxic so I said I'm just I'm just gonna unfollow them so I unfollowed them and my online experience changed immediately because I was able to curate what I was consuming. And I think the more we do that, the more we better our experience uh, in the online space. Because look, the internet is here to stay. It would be a strange purist to say, let's just detach from the internet. No, we we need to use the internet to our, our benefit. It could be a huge, huge help in a, a a move towards a better world, but we need to harness its power and shed some of its, its toxicity, really.
1: That's such a good point about us having more choice than we think we do. I mean, it's what you say about disengagement, the power of disengagement.
0: There's so much power in not engaging. There is. Like, being able to switch off and ignore in this current climate, which tells you to log on and engage, it's very rebellious, actually. It's quite badass, as I say in the book, um, at times, to just say... Actually, no. I'm going to actually go against uh, all my impulses, which tell me to refresh page and click comments and engage. And actually, I am going to detach myself entirely from this moment. It can be incredibly cathartic to do that.
1: As well as your radio show, you also have a podcast series, Too Rude for Radio, which I very much enjoy. And we are recording this mid-June for context, but your most recent episode with DJ Ace was yes. incredibly honest about, you say, how Radio One is getting whiter and whiter and whiter as the music landscape is getting blacker and blacker and blacker. Here's a clip from that podcast.
0: If, if you wanted to have black faces on Radio One, if you wanted Radio One to look how society looks, which I think it should. I think Radio One, when you look at the um, when you look at the the daytime schedule, it doesn't look to me like a reflection of what Great Britain looks like. Yeah? So if at any point you wanted to address that, I think there's someone like me who is like I've done TV, I've I've massed up listening figures on on one extra. Killed. Like it. Killed and I I watch Radio One bringing in, like constantly, bringing in talent from outside of the BBC that are white.
1: To emphasise how powerful this is to anyone listening who isn't familiar with the podcast, Too Rude for Radio is a BBC Sounds podcast, which means that you're talking honestly about the systemic racism of your employer on a podcast which is produced by them. Have you or Ace since had conversations with the broadcaster? I mean, I'd like to think those conversations are happening now with or without you, but had you done that before and has anything changed since you made that show? I have had conversations
0: and I have done so um, previously. I think the the great thing um, about this moment is that I think I said before, it it can be a bit exhausting, but it's incredibly empowering, this moment. And conversations that may have been had, you know, quietly in in offices are now um, coming to the forefront and they are empowering a generation of people that need to know these conversations are happening. And I think that was what was important about about this episode of, of Too Rude for Radio, where we took conversations that, as you rightly say, are being had, but we had it in an audience facing way because I think quite often progress is slow, and people need to be shown that it is underway and that it is happening. You know if you look at some of the the huge movements of of our time in in recent history and beyond, be it the civil rights movement, be it suffragettes, these aren't changes that happened. Overnight, these aren't changes that happened over the course of five years. It takes a long time to to move the needle, especially in an institution like the BBC, if we're being incredibly honest. It's a huge institution and it's got a big historic presence. It's not going to change its appearance overnight. It's going to be slow change. But those conversations need to be had from the inside. You know, there may be people uh, that are fans of of Radio 1 or One Extra and they say, Do you know what, this it's not the most diverse lineup of presenters, but that conversation needs to be had within, you know, you can't affect change unless you're in the building sometimes. And I think as as somebody who is in that building, I felt it was my responsibility, um, not only to, to have the conversation, but to make the dialogue public, I think is a really important conversation that, that needed to be had because... If you do look at Radio 1, the reality is, even as somebody who, who works at the network, the truth is it's incredibly white in its, in its lineup. And, and, and you look at the charts and, you know, you've got Drake and you've got Dave and you've got Stormzy and pop culture and pop music has changed. And I don't think, if I'm being entirely honest, that the, the face of Radio 1 has changed at the same pace.
1: I thought it was really interesting as well what you and um, DJ Ace were both saying as well about how there can kind of be this idea that once you're in the building, you've made it.
0: In our conversation as well, we realised as we were speaking that we were doing this not from a a, a place of sort of selfish, um, self-serving um, ambition, but also we were coming from a place of... of due care for the next generation I think you know there are there are many young black broadcasters that want to know that they don't have to just sit on one extra and maybe if you work hard enough you could go on radio one you know and reach a bigger audience and you know have have a have a primetime show that is listened to by millions rather than thousands and you want to know that you don't hit this glass ceiling where you've gone as far as you can and I think that's where it's tough when you know you're 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 putting the work in and this this is similar I think for for many industries people feel this way in in different types of jobs where you feel as though you are working as hard as you can but because of attitudes, deep like embedded attitudes you're only allowed to to go so
1: far. I also loved what you said on why you love it when black people are average on TV because you're bored of the idea oh, of man. black excellence. There's this, there's a term black excellence, which
0: yeah. um, I don't know, It's it's it fills me with pride when I see moments of black excellence, right? And this idea of black excellence is instilled in us because we were taught by our parents and they were taught by their parents that if you want to get anywhere, you're going to have to work twice as hard, all right? You're going to have to do, you know, Two times the amount of work you're going to have to work. Stay behind at work three hours later, and if you want to get ahead, you're going to have to work harder because you are a minority. And because of that, we strive for black excellence, while all the while being affronted by just absolute mediocre from from some of our white counterparts. So when I see a, a, a black person doing the bare minimum, and still managing to get their foot in the door. Sometimes I'm quite pleased, Pandora.
1: (laughs) If you wrote it now, Dottie, what would you do differently? Would you do anything differently?
0: I wouldn't write this book any differently, and it's part of why I wanted to write this book. It's because, sadly, it's timeless, right? Because we are in a perpetual cycle of outrage, and I think it's because we need to change the way in which we um, a- apply ourselves. And fortunately, I do feel like we're seeing something a bit more progressive in this moment. But for the most part, we do. We exist in this perpetual cycle where something happens, outrage heightens, outrage subsides. We calm down, repeat, right? And because of that, this book could have come out a year ago. It could have come out now. It could probably come out next year. because. It's so applicable to this climate that we have created, but what I hope is that it plays at least some small part in sort of reshaping
1: that landscape. Thank you so much, Dottie Charles, for coming on Doing It Right. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Doing It Right, please do subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform so that you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday.